Section 7 of The Wife of His Youth and Other Stories of the Color Line. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Wife of His Youth and Other Stories of the Color Line by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Uncle Wellington's Wives, Chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 Uncle Wellington Brayboy was so deeply absorbed in thought as he walked slowly homeward from the weekly meeting of the Union League that he let his pipe go out, a fact of which he remained oblivious until he had reached the little frame house in the suburbs of Patesville, where he lived with Aunt Millie, his wife. On this particular occasion, the club had been addressed by a visiting brother from the North, Professor Patterson a tall, well-formed mulatto, who wore a perfectly fitting suit of broadcloth, a shiny silk hat, and linen of dazzling whiteness, in short, a gentleman of such distinguished appearance that the doors and windows of the offices and stores on Front Street were filled with curious observers as he passed through that thoroughfare in the early part of the day. This polished stranger was a traveling organizer of Masonic lodges, but he also claimed to be a high officer in the Union League, and had been invited to lecture before the local chapter of that organization at Patesville. The lecture had been largely attended, and Uncle Wellington Brayboy had occupied a seat just in front of the platform. The subject of the lecture was the mental, moral, physical, political, social, and financial improvement of the Negro race in America a theme much dwelt upon with slight variations by colored orators for to this struggling people then as now the problem of their uncertain present and their doubtful future was the chief concern of life the period was the hopeful one the federal government retained some vestige of authority in the south and the newly emancipated race cherished the delusion that under the constitution that enduring rock on which our liberties are founded and under the equal laws it purported to guarantee, they would enter upon the era of freedom and opportunity which their northern friends had inaugurated with such solemn sanctions. The speaker pictured in eloquent language the state of ideal equality and happiness enjoyed by colored people at the north, how they sent their children to school with the white children, how they sat by white people in the churches and theaters, ate with them in the public restaurants, and buried their dead in the same cemeteries. The professor waxed eloquent with the development of his theme, and, as a finishing touch to an alluring picture, assured the excited audience that the intermarriage of the races was common, and that he himself had espoused a white woman. Uncle Wellington Brayboy was a deeply interested listener. He had heard something of these facts before, but his information had always come in such vague and questionable shape that he had paid little attention to it. He knew that the Yankees had freed the slaves, and that runaway Negroes had always gone to the North to seek liberty. Any such equality, however, as the visiting brother had depicted, was more than Uncle Wellington had ever conceived as actually existing anywhere in the world. At first he felt inclined to doubt the truth of the speaker's statements but the cut of his clothes, the eloquence of his language, and the flowing length of his whiskers were so far superior to anything Uncle Wellington had ever met among the colored people of his native state that he felt irresistibly impelled to the conviction that nothing less than the advantages claimed for the North by the visiting brother could have produced such an exquisite flower of civilization. Any lingering doubts Uncle Wellington may have felt were entirely dispelled by the courtly bow and cordial grasp of the hand with which the visiting brother acknowledged the congratulations showered upon him by the audience at the close of his address. The more Uncle Wellington's mind dwelt upon the professor's speech, the more attractive seemed the picture of northern life presented. Uncle Wellington possessed in large measure the imaginative faculty so freely bestowed by nature upon the race from which the darker half of his blood was drawn. He had indulged in occasional daydreams of an ideal state of social equality, but his wildest flights of fancy had never located it nearer than heaven, 
and he had felt some misgivings about its practical working even there. Its desirability he had never doubted, and the speech of the evening before had given a local habitation and a name to the forms his imagination had bodied forth. Giving full rein to his fancy, he saw in the north a land flowing with milk and honey, a land peopled by noble men and beautiful women, among whom colored men and women move with the ease and grace of acknowledged right. Then he placed himself in the foreground of the picture. What a fine figure he would have made in the world if he had been born at the free north! He imagined himself dressed like the professor, and passing the contribution box in a white church, and most pleasant of his dreams, and the hardest to realize as possible, was that of the gracious white lady he might have called wife. Uncle Wellington was a mulatto, and his features were those of his white father, though tinged with the hue of his mother's race. And as he lifted the kerosene lamp at evening and took a long look at his image in the little mirror over the mantelpiece, he said to himself that he was a very good-looking man, and could have adorned a much higher sphere in life than that in which the accident of birth had placed him. He fell asleep, and dreamed that he lived in a two-story brick house with a spacious flower-garden in front, the whole enclosed by a high iron fence, that he kept a carriage and servants, and never did a stroke of work. This was the highest style of living in Patesville, and he could conceive of nothing finer. Uncle Wellington slept later than usual the next morning, and the sunlight was pouring in at the open window of the bedroom, when his dreams were interrupted by the voice of his wife, in tones meant to be harsh, but which no ordinary degree of passion could rob of their native unctuousness. "'Get up from there, you lazy good-for-nothing nigger. Is you going to sleep all the morning? I's tired of this running round all night and then sleeping all day.' You won't get that tater patch hold over today lessen you get up from there and get at it. Uncle Wellington rolled over, yawned cavernously, stretched himself, and, with a muttered protest, got out of bed and put on his clothes. Aunt Milly had prepared a smoking breakfast of hominy and fried bacon, the odor of which was very grateful to his nostrils. Is breakfast done ready? he inquired tentatively, as he came into the kitchen and glanced at the table. No, it ain't ready, and it ain't going to be ready till you tote that wood and water in, replied Aunt Milly severely, as she poured two teacups of boiling water on two tablespoonfuls of ground coffee. Uncle Wellington went down to the spring and got a pail of water, after which he brought in some oak logs for the fireplace and some light wood for kindling. Then he drew a chair towards the table and started to sit down. "'Wonder what's the matter with you this morning, anyhow?' remarked Aunt Milly. "'You must have been up to some devilment last night, "'for your recommembrance is so poor that you first forget to get up, "'and then forget to wash your face and hands for you sit down to the table. "'I don't allow nobody to eat at my table that way. "'I don't see no use of washing them so much,' replied Wellington wearily. "'They gets dirty again right off, and then you got to wash them over again.' It's just piling up work what don't fetch in nothing. The dirt don't show no how, and I don't see no advantage in being black if you got to keep on washing your face and hands just like white folks. He, nevertheless, performed his ablutions in a perfunctory way and resumed his seat at the breakfast table. Oh, woman, he asked, after the edge of his appetite had been taken off, how would you like to live at the North? I don't know nothing about the North, replied Aunt Milly. It's hard enough to get along here, where we knows all about it. The brother what dressed the meetin' last night say that the wages at the North is twice as big as they is here. You could make a sight more wages here if you'd tend to your work better, replied Aunt Milly. Uncle Wellington ignored this personality and continued. And he say the colored folks got all the privileges of the white folks that they chillin' go to school together, that they sets on same seats in church and serves on jury, and rides on the cars and steamboats with the white folks, and eats at the fuss table. That'd suit you, chuckled Aunt Milly, and you'd stay there for the second table, too. How this man know about all this foolishness? 
she asked incredulously. He come from the north, said Uncle Wellington, and expensed it all herself. Well, he can't make me believe it, she rejoined with a shake of her head. And you wouldn't like to go up there and enjoy all these privileges? asked Uncle Wellington with some degree of earnestness. The old woman laughed until her sides shook. Who going to take me up there? she inquired. You got the money yourself. I ain't got no money for the waste, she replied shortly, becoming serious at once. And with that the subject was dropped. Uncle Wellington pulled a hole from under the house and took his way wearily to the potato patch. He did not feel like working, but Aunt Millie was the undisputed head of the establishment, and he did not dare to openly neglect his work. In fact, he regarded work at any time as a disagreeable necessity to be avoided as much as possible. His wife was cast in a different mold. Externally, she would have impressed the casual observer as a neat, well-preserved, and good-looking black woman of middle age, every curve of whose ample figure, and her figure was all curves, was suggestive of repose. So far from being indolent or even deliberate in her movements, she was the most active and energetic woman in the town. She went through the physical exercises of a prayer meeting with astonishing vigor. It was exhilarating to see her wash a shirt, and a study to watch her do it up. A quick jerk shook out the dampened garment. One pass of her ample palm spread it over the ironing board, and a few well-directed strokes with the iron accomplished what would have occupied the ordinary laundress for half an hour. To this uncommon, and in Uncle Wellington's opinion, unnecessary and unnatural activity, his own habits were a steady protest. If Aunt Millie had been willing to support him in idleness, he would have acquiesced without a murmur in her habits of industry. This she would not do, and, moreover, insisted on his working at least half the time. If she had invested the proceeds of her labor in rich food and fine clothing, he might have endured it better. But to her passion for work was added a most detestable thrift. She absolutely refused to pay for Wellington's clothes, and required him to furnish a certain proportion of the family supplies. Her savings were carefully put by, and with them she had bought and paid for the modest cottage which she and her husband occupied. Under her careful hand it was always neat and clean. In summer the little yard was gay with bright-colored flowers, and woe to the heedless piccaninny who should stray into her yard and pluck a rose or a verbena. In a stout oaken chest under her bed she kept a capacious stocking, into which flowed a steady stream of fractional currency. She carried the key to this chest in her pocket, a proceeding regarded by Uncle Wellington with no little disfavor. He was of the opinion, an opinion he would not have dared to assert in her presence, that his wife's earnings were his own property, and he looked upon this stocking as a drunkard's wife might regard the saloon which absorbed her husband's wages. Uncle Wellington hurried over the potato patch on the morning of the conversation above recorded, and as soon as he saw Aunt Millie go away with a basket of clothes on her head, returned to the house, put on his coat, and went uptown. He directed his steps to a small frame building fronting on the main street of the village, at a point where the street was intersected by one of the several creeks meandering through the town, cooling the air providing numerous swimming-holes for the amphibious small boy, and furnishing water-power for grist-mills and saw-mills. The rear of the building rested on long brick pillars, built up from the bottom of the steep bank of the creek, while the front was level with the street. This was the office of Mr. Matthew Wright, the sole representative of the colored race, at the bar of Chinkapin County. Mr. Wright came of an old-issue, free-colored family, in which, though the Negro blood was present in an attenuated strain, a line of free ancestry could be traced beyond the Revolutionary War. He had enjoyed exceptional opportunities, and enjoyed the distinction of being the first, and for a long time, the only colored lawyer in North Carolina. His services were frequently called into requisition by impecunious people of his own race. When they had money, they went to white lawyers, who, they shrewdly conjectured, would have more influence with judge or jury 
than a colored lawyer, however able. Uncle Wellington found Mr. Wright in his office. Having inquired after the health of the lawyer's family and all his relations in detail, Uncle Wellington asked for a professional opinion. Mr. Wright, if a man's wife got money, whose money is dat before the law? Hisn or hern? The lawyer put on his professional air and replied, Under the common law, which, in default of special legislative enactment, is the law of North Carolina, the personal property of the wife belongs to her husband. But that don't just touch the point, sir. I was axing about money. You see, Uncle Wellington, your education has not rendered you familiar with legal phraseology. The term personal property or estate embraces, according to Blackstone, all property other than land, and therefore includes money. Any money a man's wife has is his, constructively, and will be recognized as his actually, as soon as he can secure possession of it. That is to say, sir, my education don't quite allow me to understand that, that is to say. That is to say, it's yours when you get it. It isn't yours so that the law will help you get it, but, on the other hand, when you once lay your hands on it, it is yours so that the law won't take it away from you. Uncle Wellington nodded to express his full comprehension of the law as expounded by Mr. Wright, but scratched his head in a way that expressed some disappointment. The law seemed to wobble. Instead of enabling him to stand up fearlessly and demand his own, it threw him back upon his own efforts, and the prospect of his being able to overpower or outwit Aunt Milly by any ordinary means was very poor. He did not leave the office, but hung around a while, as though there were something further he wished to speak about. Finally, after some discursive remarks about the crops and politics, he asked, in an off-hand, disinterested manner, as though the thought had just occurred to him. Mr. Wright, whilst we talking about law matters, what does it cost to get a defose? That depends upon circumstances. It isn't altogether a matter of expense. Have you and Aunt Millie been having trouble? Oh, no, sir. I was just wondering. You see, continued the lawyer, who was fond of talking and had nothing else to do for the moment, a divorce is not an easy thing to get in this state under any circumstances. It used to be the law that divorce could be granted only by special act of the legislature, and it is but recently that the subject has been relegated to the jurisdiction of the courts. Uncle Wellington understood a part of this, but the answer had not been exactly to the point in his mind. Supposing then, just for the argument, me and my old woman should fall out and want to separate, how could I get a defose? That would depend on what you quarreled about. It's pretty hard work to answer general questions in a particular way. If you merely wished to separate, it wouldn't be necessary to get a divorce. But if you should want to marry again, you would have to be divorced, or else you would be guilty of bigamy and could be sent to the penitentiary. But, by the way, Uncle Wellington, when were you married? I got mad for the war when I was living down on Rockfish Creek. When you were in slavery? Yes, sir. Did you have your marriage registered after the surrender? No, sir. Never knowed nothing about that. After the war in North Carolina and other states, the freed people who had sustained to each other the relation of husband and wife as it existed among slaves were required by law to register their consent to continue in the marriage relation. By this simple expedient, their former marriages of convenience received the sanction of law, and their children the seal of legitimacy. In many cases, however, where the parties lived in districts remote from the larger towns, the ceremony was neglected, or never heard of by the freedmen. Well, said the lawyer, if that is the case, and you and Aunt Millie should disagree, it wouldn't be necessary for you to get a divorce, even if you should want to marry again. You were never legally married. So Millie ain't my lawful wife, then? She may be your wife in one sense of the word, but not in such a sense as to render you liable to punishment for bigamy if you should marry another woman. 
but I hope you will never want to do anything of the kind, for you have a very good wife now. Uncle Wellington went away thoughtfully, but with a feeling of unaccustomed lightness and freedom. He had not felt so free since the memorable day when he had first heard of the Emancipation Proclamation. On leaving the lawyer's office, he called at the workshop of one of his friends, Peter Williams, a shoemaker by trade, who had a brother living in Ohio. "'Is you hearn from Sam lately?' Uncle Wellington inquired after the conversation had drifted through the usual generalities. "'His mammy got a letter from him last week. He's living in the town of Groveland now. "'How's he getting on?' "'He says he's getting on monstrous well. "'He lies how he make five dollars a day whitewashing and have all he can do.' The shoemaker related various details of his brother's prosperity, and Uncle Wellington returned home in a very thoughtful mood, revolving in his mind a plan of future action. This plan had been vaguely assuming form ever since the professor's lecture, and the events of the morning had brought out the detail in bold relief. Two days after the conversation with the shoemaker, Aunt Millie went, in the afternoon, to visit a sister of hers who lived several miles out in the country. During her absence, which lasted until nightfall, Uncle Wellington went uptown and purchased a cheap oilcloth valise from a shrewd son of Israel who had penetrated to this locality with a stock of notions and cheap clothing. Uncle Wellington had his purchase done up in brown paper and took the parcel under his arm. Arrived at home, he unwrapped the valise and threw into its capacious jaws his best suit of clothes, some underwear and a few other small articles for personal use and adornment. Then he carried the valise out into the yard, and, first looking cautiously around to see if there was anyone in sight, concealed it in a clump of bushes in a corner of the yard. It may be inferred from this proceeding that Uncle Wellington was preparing for a step of some consequence. In fact, he had fully made up his mind to go to the north, but he still lacked the most important requisite for traveling with comfort, namely, the money to pay his expenses. The idea of tramping the distance which separated him from the promised land of liberty and equality had never occurred to him. When a slave, he had several times been importuned by fellow servants to join them in the attempt to escape from bondage, but he had never wanted his freedom badly enough to walk a thousand miles for it. If he could have gone to Canada by stagecoach, or by rail, or on horseback, with stops for regular meals, he would probably have undertaken the trip. The funds he now needed for his journey were in Aunt Millie's chest. He had thought a great deal about his right to this money. It was his wife's savings, and he had never dared to dispute, openly, her right to exercise exclusive control over what she earned. But the lawyer had assured him of his right to the money of which he was already constructively in possession, and he had therefore determined to possess himself actually of the coveted stocking. It was impracticable for him to get the key of the chest. Aunt Millie kept it in her pocket by day and under her pillow at night. She was a light sleeper, and, if not awakened by the abstraction of the key, would certainly have been disturbed by the unlocking of the chest but one alternative remained, and that was to break open the chest in her absence. There was a revival in progress at the colored Methodist church. Aunt Millie was as energetic in her religion as in other respects, and had not missed a single one of the meetings. She returned at nightfall from her visit to the country and prepared a frugal supper. Uncle Wellington did not eat as heartily as usual. Aunt Millie perceived his want of appetite and spoke of it. He explained it by saying that he did not feel very well. "'Is you going to church tonight?' inquired his wife. "'I reckon I'll stay home and go to bed,' he replied. "'I ain't been feeling well this evening, and I speck I better get a good night's rest.' "'Well, you can stay if you mind to. God preaching would make you feel better. But if you ain't going, don't forget to tote in some wood and light it before you go to bed. The moon is shining bright.' and you can't have no excuse by not being able to see. Uncle Wellington followed her out to the gate and watched her receding form until it disappeared in the distance. 
Then he re-entered the house with a quick step, and taking a hatchet from a corner of the room, drew the chest from under the bed. As he applied the hatchet to the fastenings, a thought struck him, and by the flickering light of the pine knot blazing on the hearth, a look of hesitation might have been seen to take the place of the determined expression his face had worn up to that time. He had argued himself into the belief that his present action was lawful and justifiable. Though this conviction had not prevented him from trembling in every limb, as though he were committing a mere vulgar theft, it had still nerved him to the deed. Now even his moral courage began to weaken. The lawyer had told him that his wife's property was his own. In taking it, he was therefore only exercising his lawful right. But at the point of breaking open the chest, it occurred to him that he was taking this money in order to get away from Aunt Milly, and that he justified his desertion of her by the lawyer's opinion that she was not his lawful wife. If she was not his wife, then he had no right to take the money. If she was his wife, he had no right to desert her, and would certainly have no right to marry another woman. His scheme was about to go to shipwreck on this rock when another idea occurred to him. The lawyer say that in one sense of the word, the old woman is my wife, and in another sense of the word, she ain't my wife. If I go sit north and marry a white woman, I ain't commit no brigamy, because in that sense of the word, she ain't my wife. But if I takes this money, I ain't stealing it, cause in that sense of the word, she is my wife. That explains all the trouble way. Having reached this ingenious conclusion, Uncle Wellington applied the hatchet vigorously, soon loosening the fastenings of the chest, and with trembling hands extracted from its depths a capacious blue cotton stocking. He emptied the stocking on the table. His first impulse was to take the whole. But again there arose in his mind a doubt, a very obtrusive, unreasonable doubt, but a doubt nevertheless, of the absolute rectitude of his conduct. And after a moment's hesitation, he hurriedly counted the money, it was in bills of small denominations, and found it to be about two hundred and fifty dollars. He then divided it into two piles of one hundred and twenty-five dollars each. He put one pile into his pocket, returned the remainder to the stocking, and replaced it where he had found it. He then closed the chest, and shoved it under the bed. After having arranged the fire so that it could safely be left burning, he took a last look around the room, and went out into the moonlight, locking the door behind him, and hanging the key on a nail in the wall, where his wife would be likely to look for it. He then secured his valise from behind the bushes, and left the yard. As he passed by the woodpile, he said to himself, "'Well, I declare if I ain't done forgot to tote in that lighted. I reckon the old woman'll have to fetch it in herself this time.' He hastened through the quiet streets, avoiding the few people who were abroad at that hour, and soon reached the railroad station from which a northbound train left at nine o'clock. He went around to the dark side of the train and climbed into a second-class car, where he shrank into the darkest corner and turned his face away from the dim light of the single dirty lamp. There were no passengers in the car except one or two sleepy negroes who had got on at some other station, and a white man who had gone into the car to smoke, accompanied by a gigantic bloodhound. Finally the train crept out of the station. From the window Uncle Wellington looked out upon the familiar cabins and turpentine stills, the new barrel factory, the brickyard where he had once worked for some time, and as the train rattled through the outskirts of the town, he saw gleaming in the moonlight the white headstones of the colored cemetery where his only daughter had been buried several years before. Presently the conductor came around. Uncle Wellington had not bought a ticket, and the conductor collected a cash fare. He was not acquainted with Uncle Wellington, but had just had a drink at the saloon near the depot, and felt at peace with all mankind. "'Where are you going, Uncle?' he inquired carelessly. Uncle Wellington's face assumed the ashen hue which does duty for pallor in dusky countenances, and his knees began to tremble. Controlling his voice as well as he could, he replied that he was going up to Jonesboro, the terminus of the railroad, 
to work for a gentleman at that place. He felt immensely relieved when the conductor pocketed the fare, picked up his lantern, and moved away. It was very unphilosophical and very absurd that a man who was only doing right should feel like a thief, shrink from the sight of other people, and lie instinctively. Fine distinctions were not in Uncle Wellington's line, but he was struck by the unreasonableness of his feelings, and still more by the discomfort they caused him. By and by, however, the motion of the train made him drowsy. His thoughts all ran together in confusion, and he fell asleep with his head on his valise, and one hand in his pocket, clasped tightly around the roll of money. CHAPTER Two. The train from Pittsburgh drew into the Union Depot at Groveland, Ohio, one morning in the spring of 1870 blank, with bell ringing and engine puffing, and from a smoking car emerged the form of Uncle Wellington Brayboy, a little dusty and travel-stained, and with a sleepy look about his eyes. He mingled in the crowd, and, valise in hand, moved toward the main exit from the depot. There were several tracks to be crossed, and more than once a watchman snatched him out of the way of a baggage truck or a train backing into the depot. He at length reached the door, beyond which, and as near as the regulations would permit, stood a number of hackmen vociferously soliciting patronage. One of them, a colored man, soon secured several passengers. As he closed the door after the last one, he turned to Uncle Wellington, who stood near him on the sidewalk, looking about irresolutely. "'Is you going uptown?' asked the hackman, as he prepared to mount the box. "'Yes, sir.' "'I'll take you up for a quarter if you want to get up here and ride in a box with me.' Uncle Wellington accepted the offer and mounted the box. The hackman whipped up his horses, the carriage climbed the steep hill leading up to the town, and the passengers inside were soon deposited at their hotels. "'Whereabouts do you want to go?' asked the hackman of Uncle Wellington when the carriage was emptied of its last passengers. "'I want to go to Brother Sam Williams's,' said Wellington. "'What's his street and number?' Uncle Wellington did not know the street and number, and the hackman had to explain to him the mystery of numbered houses, to which he was a total stranger. "'Where's he from?' asked the hackman. "'And what is his business?' "'He is from North Carolina,' replied Uncle Wellington, "'and makes his living whitewashing.' "'I reckon I knows the man,' said the hackman. "'I speck he's changed his name. "'The man I knows is named Johnson. "'He belongs to my church. "'I'm going out that way to get a passenger for the ten o'clock train, "'and I'll take you by there.' "'They followed one of the least handsome streets of the city "'for more than a mile, turned into a cross-street, and drew up before a small frame-house, from the front of which a sign, painted in white upon a black background, announced to the reading public, in letters inclined to each other at various angles, that whitewashing and calsuming were done there. A knock at the door brought out a slatternly-looking colored woman. She had evidently been disturbed at her toilet, for she held a comb in one hand, and the hair on one side of her head stood out loosely, while on the other side it was braided close to her head. She called her husband, who proved to be the Patesville shoemaker's brother. The hackman introduced the traveler, whose name he had learned on the way out, collected his quarter, and drove away. Mr. Johnson, the shoemaker's brother, welcomed Uncle Wellington to Groveland, and listened with eager delight to the news of the old town, from which he himself had run away many years before, and followed the North Star to Groveland. He had changed his name from Williams to Johnson, on account of the fugitive slave law, which, at the time of his escape from bondage, had rendered it advisable for runaway slaves to court obscurity. After the war, he had retained the adopted name. Mrs. Johnson prepared breakfast for her guest, who ate it with an appetite sharpened by his journey. After breakfast, he went to bed, and slept until late in the afternoon. After supper, Mr. Johnson took Uncle Wellington to visit some of the neighbors who had come from North Carolina before the war. They all expressed much pleasure at meeting Mr. Brayboy, a title which at first sounded a little odd to Uncle Wellington. At home he had been Wellington, Bruh Wellington, 
or Uncle Wellington. It was a novel experience to be called Mr., and he set it down with secret satisfaction as one of the first fruits of northern liberty. "'Would you like to look round the town a little?' asked Mr. Johnson at breakfast next morning. "'I ain't got no job this morning, and I can show you some of the sights.' Uncle Wellington acquiesced in this arrangement, and they walked up to the corner to the streetcar line. In a few moments a car passed. Mr. Johnson jumped on the moving car, and Uncle Wellington followed his example, at the risk of life or limb, as it was his first experience of streetcars. There was only one vacant seat in the car, and that was between two white women in the forward end. Mr. Johnson motioned to the seat but Wellington shrank from walking between those two rows of white people, to say nothing of sitting between the two women, so he remained standing in the rear part of the car. A moment later, as the car rounded a short curve, he was pitched sideways into the lap of a stout woman, magnificently attired in a ruffled blue calico gown. The lady colored up, and Uncle Wellington, as he struggled to his feet amid the laughter of the passengers, was absolutely helpless with embarrassment, until the conductor came up behind him and pushed him toward the vacant place. "'Sit down, will you?' he said. And before Uncle Wellington could collect himself, he was seated between the two white women. Everybody in the car seemed to be looking at him, but he came to the conclusion, after he had pulled himself together and reflected a few moments, that he would find this method of locomotion pleasanter when he got used to it and then he could score one more glorious privilege gained by his change of residence. They got off at the public square in the heart of the city, where there were flowers and statues and fountains playing. Mr. Johnson pointed out the courthouse, the post office, the jail, and other public buildings fronting on the square. They visited the market nearby, and from an elevated point, looked down upon the extensive lumber-yards and factories that were the chief sources of the city's prosperity. Beyond these they could see the fleet of ships that lined the coal and iron ore docks of the harbor. Mr. Johnson, who was quite a fluent talker, enlarged upon the wealth and prosperity of the city, and Wellington, who had never before been in a town of more than three thousand inhabitants, manifested sufficient interest and wonder to satisfy the most exacting Cicerone. They called at the office of a colored lawyer and member of the legislature, formerly from North Carolina, who, scenting a new constituent and a possible client, greeted the stranger warmly, and, in flowing speech, pointed out the superior advantages of life at the North, citing himself as an illustration of the possibilities of life in a country really free. As they wended their way homeward to dinner, Uncle Wellington, with quickened pulse and rising hopes, felt that this was indeed the promised land, and that it must be flowing with milk and honey. Uncle Wellington remained at the residence of Mr. Johnson for several weeks before making any effort to find employment. He spent this period in looking about the city. The most commonplace things possessed for him the charm of novelty, and he had come prepared to admire. Shortly after his arrival he had offered to pay for his board, intimating at the same time that he had plenty of money. Mr. Johnson declined to accept anything from him for board, and expressed himself as being only too proud to have Mr. Brayboy remain in the house on the footing of an honored guest, until he had settled himself. He lightened in some degree, however, the burden of obligation under which a prolonged stay on these terms would have placed his guest, by soliciting from the latter occasional small loans, until Uncle Wellington's roll of money began to lose its plumpness, and, with an empty pocket staring him in the face, he felt the necessity of finding something to do. During his residence in the city, he had met several times his first acquaintance, Mr. Peterson, the hackman, who from time to time inquired how he was getting along. On one of these occasions, Wellington mentioned his willingness to accept employment. As good luck would have it, Mr. Peterson knew of a vacant situation. He had formerly been coachman for a wealthy gentleman residing on Oakwood Avenue, but had resigned the situation to go into business for himself. His place had been filled by an Irishman, who had just been discharged for drunkenness, 
and the gentleman that very day had sent word to Mr. Peterson asking him if he could recommend a competent and trustworthy coachman. "'Does you know anything about hosses?' asked Mr. Peterson. "'Yes, indeed I does,' said Wellington. "'I was raised amongst hosses.' "'I told my old boss I'd look out for a man, and if you reckon you can fill the requirements of the situation, I'll take you round there tomorrow morning.' You wants to put on your best clothes and slick up, for they're particular people. If you get the place, I expect you to pay me for the time I lost in tending to your business, but time is money in this country, and folks don't do much for nothing. Next morning, Wellington blacked his shoes carefully, put on a clean collar, and with the aid of Mrs. Johnson tied his cravat in a jaunty bow, which gave him quite a sprightly air, and a much younger look than his years warranted. Mr. Peterson called for him at eight o'clock. After traversing several cross streets, they turned into Oakwood Avenue and walked along the finest part of it for about half a mile. The handsome houses of this famous avenue, the stately trees, the wide-spreading lawns dotted with flower-beds, fountains, and statuary, made up a picture so far surpassing anything in Wellington's experience as to fill him with an almost oppressive sense of its beauty. "'It looks like heaven,' he said softly. "'It's a pretty fine street,' rejoined his companion, with a judicial air. "'But I don't like them big lawns. It's too much trouble to keep the grass down. One of them lawns is big enough to pasture a couple of cows.' They went down a street running at right angles to the avenue, and turned into the rear of the corner lot. A large building of pressed brick trimmed with stone loomed up before them. "'Do the gentlemen live in this house?' asked Wellington, gazing with awe at the front of the building. "'No. That's the barn,' said Mr. Peterson, with good-natured contempt. And, leading the way past a clump of shrubbery to the dwelling-house, he went up the back steps and rang the doorbell. The ring was answered by a buxom Irishwoman, of a natural freshness of complexion deepened to a fiery red by the heat of a kitchen range. Wellington thought he had seen her before, but his mind had received so many new impressions lately that it was a minute or two before he recognized in her the lady whose lap he had involuntarily occupied for a moment on his first day in Groveland. "'Faith!' she exclaimed as she admitted them. "'And it's mighty glad I am to see you again, Mr. Patterson.' "'And how have you been, Mr. Pettison, since I see you last?' "'Middlin' well, Miss Flanagan, middlin' well, exceptin' the tetch of the rheumatiz. "'Sposin' you been doin' well as usual?' "'Oh, yes, as well as a decent woman could do with the broken baste about the place like the last coachman. "'Oh, Mr. Pettison, it would make your heart bleed to see the way the spalpeen caught up a Saturday.' "'But Mr. Todd discharged him the same evening, without a character, bad cess to him, "'and we've had no coachman since at all at all. "'And it's sorry I am.' "'The lady's flow of eloquence was interrupted at this point "'by the appearance of Mr. Todd himself, who had been informed of the men's arrival. "'He asked some questions in regard to Wellington's qualifications and former experience, "'and in view of his recent arrival in the city was willing to accept Mr. Peterson's recommendation instead of a reference. He said a few words about the nature of the work, and stated his willingness to pay Wellington the wages formerly allowed Mr. Peterson, thirty dollars a month, and board and lodging. This handsome offer was eagerly accepted, and it was agreed that Wellington's term of service should begin immediately. Mr. Peterson, being familiar with the work and financially interested, conducted the new coachman through the stables, and showed him what he would have to do. The silver-mounted harness, the variety of carriages, the names of which he learned for the first time, the arrangements for feeding and watering the horses, these appointments of a rich man's stable impressed Wellington very much, and he wondered that so much luxury should be wasted on mere horses. The room assigned to him, in the second story of the barn, was a finer apartment than he had ever slept in and the salary attached to the situation was greater than the combined monthly earnings of himself and Aunt Millie in their southern home. Surely, he thought, his lines had fallen in pleasant places. Under the stimulus of new surroundings, 
Wellington applied himself diligently to work, and, with the occasional advice of Mr. Peterson, soon mastered the details of his employment. He found the female servants, with whom he took his meals, very amiable ladies. The cook, Mrs. Katie Flanagan, was a widow. Her husband, a sailor, had been lost at sea. She was a woman of many words, and when she was not lamenting the late Flanagan's loss, according to her story he had been a model of all the virtues, she would turn the batteries of her tongue against the former coachman. This gentleman, as Wellington gathered from frequent remarks dropped by Mrs. Flanagan, had paid her attentions clearly susceptible of a serious construction. These attentions had not borne their legitimate fruit, and she was still a widow unconsoled. Hence, Mrs. Flanagan's tears. The housemaid was a plump, good-natured German girl, with a pronounced German accent. The presence on wash days of a bohemian laundress of recent importation added another to the variety of ways in which the English tongue was mutilated in Mr. Todd's kitchen. Association with the white women drew out all the native gallantry of the mulatto, and Wellington developed quite a helpful turn. His politeness, his willingness to lend a hand in kitchen or laundry, and the fact that he was the only male servant on the place, combined to make him a prime favorite in the servants' quarters. It was the general opinion among Wellington's acquaintances that he was a single man. He had come to the city alone, had never been heard to speak of a wife, and to personal questions bearing upon the subject of matrimony had always returned evasive answers. Though he had never questioned the correctness of the lawyer's opinion in regard to his slave marriage, his conscience had never been entirely at ease since his departure from the South, and any positive denial of his married condition would have stuck in his throat. The inference naturally drawn from his reticence in regard to the past, coupled with his expressed intention of settling permanently in Groveland, was that he belonged in the ranks of the unmarried, and was therefore legitimate game for any widow or old maid who could bring him down. As such game is bagged easiest at short range, he received numerous invitations to tea parties, where he feasted on unlimited chicken and pound cake. He used to compare these viands with the plain fare often served by Aunt Millie, and the result of the comparison was another item to the credit of the North upon his mental ledger. Several of the colored ladies who smiled upon him were blessed with good looks, and Uncle Wellington, naturally of a susceptible temperament, as people of lively imagination are apt to be, would probably have fallen a victim to the charms of some woman of his own race had it not been for a strong counter-attraction in the person of Mrs. Flanagan. The attentions of the lately discharged coachman had lighted anew the smoldering fires of her widowed heart, and awakened longings which still remained unsatisfied. She was thirty-five years old, and felt the need of someone else to love. She was not a woman of lofty ideals. With her, a man was a man. For a that and a that. And, aside from the accident of color, Uncle Wellington was as personable a man as any of her acquaintance. Some people might have objected to his complexion, but then Mrs. Flanagan argued, he was at least half white, and this being the case, there was no good reason why he should be regarded as black. Uncle Wellington was not slow to perceive Mrs. Flanagan's charms of person, and appreciated to the full the skill that prepared the choice tidbits reserved for his plate at dinner. The prospect of securing a white wife had been one of the principal inducements offered by a life at the North but the awe of white people in which he had been reared was still too strong to permit his taking any active steps toward the object of his secret desire. Had not the lady herself come to his assistance with a little of the native coquetry of her race. "'Ah, Mr. Brayboy,' she said one evening when they sat at the supper-table alone. It was the second girl's afternoon off, and she had not come home to supper." It must be an awful lonesome life you've been after laden as a single man, with no one to cook for ye, or look after ye. It are a kind of lonesome life, Miss Flanagan, and that's a fact. 
but since I had the privilege of eating your cooking and enjoying your society, I ain't felt a bit lonesome. You're flattering me, Mr. Brayboy, and even if you mean it, I means every word of it, Miss Flanagan. And even if you mean it, Mr. Brayboy, the time is liable to come when things will be different. Your service is uncertain, Mr. Brayboy, and then you'll wish you'd had some nice clean women that knowed how to cook and wash and iron to look after you and make your life comfortable. Uncle Wellington sighed and looked at her languishingly. It'd all be well enough, Miss Flanagan, if I hadn't met you. But I don't know where I was to find a colored lady would will begin to suit me after having lived in the same house with you. Colored lady, indeed. Why, Mr. Brayboy, you don't need to demand yourself by marrying a colored lady. Not but they're as good as anybody else, so long as they behave themselves. There's many a white woman who'd be glad to get as fine a looking man as ye are. Now you're flirting with me, Miss Flanagan said wellington but he felt a sudden and substantial increase in courage when she had spoken and it was with astonishing ease that he found himself saying there ain't but one lady miss flanagan that could interest me to want to change the lonesomeness of my singleness for the responsibilities of matrimony and i'm feared she'd say no if i'd ask her you'd better ask her mr brayboy and not be wasting time a wondering do i know the lady you knows her better than anybody else, Miss Flanagan. You is the only lady I'd be satisfied to marry after knowing you. If you cast me off, I'll spend the rest of my days in lonesomeness and misery. Mrs. Flanagan affected much surprise and embarrassment at this bold declaration. Oh, Mr. Brayboy, she said, covering him with a coy glance. And it's a real shame I am to have been talking to you as I have. It looks as though I'd been doing the courtin'. I didn't dream that I'd be able to draw your affections to myself. I's loved you ever since I fell in your lap on a streetcar the first day I was in Groveland, he said as he moved his chair up closer to hers. One evening in the following week, they went out after supper to the residence of Reverend Caesar Williams, pastor of the Colored Baptist Church, and after the usual preliminaries, were pronounced man and wife. End of section seven. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.